Welcome to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Witte. I'm here with my co-host, John Kiriakou. We're going to go against the grain wildly, perhaps, as we wait for a tornado to maybe form over Washington, D.C. Crazy Um, but true. Yeah. Probably we're going to be fine here in the studio. You guys are going to have to keep an eye on it for us. And the funny thing is that it's supposed to hit like any time from right now until when the show ends. Yeah. We just broadcast (laughs) through it. Don't pay any attention. Doesn't matter. The winds are going to pick up. We'll we'll see. We'll see what's on the other side of this. Uh, We do have a lot to wrap up before we get out of here for a long weekend. Uh, We are going to be looking back at the Davos meeting that we pretty comprehensively ignored this week. Not accidentally, really, uh, but because who expects a bunch of billionaires and the governments they fund to do anything about their own destruction? It's, you know, just a bunch of like backslapping and. Oh, yeah. And if I could interrupt you for one second, I saw a photo from Davos uh, yesterday that just blew my mind. It was it was fifteen hundred private jets all lined up uh, at at an airport. Um used by these billionaires and movers and shakers from around the world to fly into Davos to meet to tell us how to cut our carbon footprints. And to talk about how to uh, uh, how to respond to the drivers of eco-anxiety. Right. Which is what the rest of us are feeling. Right. Yeah, yeah. So we are going to talk about that. Uh, we'll take a look at what went down there. We are going to talk about piracy. It's time it's the United States. Actually, most of the time it's the United States. And this is, again, a case of a bunch of Iranian oil that appears to have been seized by the U.S. on the high seas. And let me interrupt you on that note. Anytime, John. You know, as as it so happens, when I was stationed in Bahrain, I was the sanctions officer for the U.S. Embassy. And there were two occasions during my two years there where we seized ships uh, carrying Iraqi oil. Now, what we did was we offloaded the oil right there in Bahrain. It was held in tanks and eventually auctioned, and the money went to the United Nations so that the United Nations could buy food and medicine for the Iraqi people, okay? What you're describing, what happened in Greece yesterday, was that the United States stopped this Iranian tanker uh, carrying Russian oil they seized the oil and they brought it or are in the process of bringing it to the United States. We just stole it. Just we did stole that with the, the last oil. time it was oil that was going to Venezuela. Right. Yeah, we just stole it. Just steal it. Yeah. Bring it to the U.S. It's ours we're now. Because bo- we're world boss. That is the definition of piracy. Yeah, we fit it. Uh, we are going to talk about that. We are going to get some updates from Russia and Iran on the political and financial situations there. And it's been interesting, especially on Russia, you know, over the last week or so, it's been sort of dueling headlines going, um, the, Putin's going to lose this war and Russia's going to be destabilized. And there's been sort of like people going, yeah, that's the outcome we want. And people going, no, that's not the outcome we want. <laughs> right. Whether that is even, uh, you know, going to be an outcome is something that I hope to get into. And then, you know, who who's cheering for it, who's not, and who's going to be most affected if it does indeed come to pass. We are going to take a look ahead at elections coming up in Colombia. We will talk about some of the abortion restrictions being passed here in the United States. Uh, Going to get into the irony of a Supreme Court that seems to have, in a recent decision, decided that it would prefer potentially innocent people to be executed mm-hmm. rather than to overturn 
established procedures and court hierarchies. That's right. Which is, again, pretty rich, considering this is the same court that wants to force babies to be born to people who don't want them. So not not a lot of coherence when it comes to the sanctity of life. Um, But of course, why would we expect that? There doesn't seem to be a lot of coherence in our policies these days. Uh, And speaking of incoherence, we'll get some more of it uh, with News of the Weird. Yeah. At the end of the show, right. which I'm looking forward I've to. Some, and I never, I never spy ahead of time, so it's always brand oh, new to me. Hey, that's great. Yeah, I'm excited. Oh, we're going to have fun. And of course, we have to start the show with an update on the timeline of the Ubalde school shooting because police have given so many conflicting and flat out wrong reports that we're still piecing it together. Um, but John, you remember how the, sh- the shooter supposedly exchanged fire with a school resource officer right. on his way into the school? That didn't happen. Never happened. That didn't happen. Nope, the police made no it up. No one encountered him. It also turns out that the shooter was outside the school firing across the street at a funeral home for 10 minutes before then he walked in through an unlocked door. So 10 minutes of him just sort of firing, uh, apparently... Nobody engaging him at all. The police arrived at the school four minutes after that. So pretty quick. Yes. You know, pretty, pretty quick response time. They apparently exchanged fire with him when they arrived. I don't know how that happened. If they were like shooting through windows or whatever. We have heard of officers sort of going around the school, breaking windows to try to get kids from other parts of the school Mm -hmm. out. Uh, But basically some shots fired and then they just backed off. He uh, barricaded himself in a classroom, and it wasn't until nearly an hour later that a tactical team arrived to go in after him. And we were just talking about this this morning, but, you know, Scott Peterson, who is the school security guard, but also deputy sheriff who was at the scene at Parkland High School uh, for that shooting, he's facing still a bunch of felony child neglect charges charges for, you know, what he... You know, obviously he's charged with neglect. I believe his position is that he thought the shooter was outside the school and he thought he was doing the right thing. But that trial is going to happen um, this fall, I believe. Right. But that's one dude. That's you right. Know? Not you an say entire police force. Yeah, I mean, we can see these guys. Uh-huh. There are just report after report of cops, you know, hanging out in their cars, milling around. Um, we've learned that U.S. Marshals, according to uh, the woman, the parent, U.S. Marshals actually handcuffed at least one woman, a mom of someone at the school, for interfering in an active investigation because parents were apparently at first going, hey, seems like you should go in there, right? You guys are planning to go in there, right? And then more and more forcefully demanding police go in and then attempting to go in themselves when police wouldn't. So she was apparently handcuffed as part of this process. She says she then went to local police who she knew and got them to uncuff her. The U.S. Marshals uh, are denying this. She says the police also did use a taser on one parent. And of course, we have seen on video them sure. tackling and restraining another parent sure. who was yelling at yes. them to do something in that hour when I guess, how many police officers were there? At least a dozen. A dozen at least. Yes. And they were Wait. waiting for members of the Marshal Service, DEA, Border Patrol. And Border Patrol, ultimately. Yeah. Uh-huh. Who were the ones who, you know, I don't usually have a whole lot of good things to say about Border Patrol. But again, if you can believe if you can believe their story, it was a Border Patrol officer who shot this guy. It was Border Patrol who were actually willing to go in there and put themselves in harm's way to bring this carnage inside the school to an end. So, you know, they seem to have acted as soon as they arrived. But 
all of the cops were there who were there at the time couldn't put together a plan to to go in. I don't know. It's it's very frustrating um, and very, very sad. And, you know, you can it is you can read more of the stories of what kids in the school did to try to protect themselves as well, which is horrifying. I hope the the mainstream media um, really focuses on this because I think that all of us deserve to know exactly what the timeline was and what the cops were doing. Mm -hmm. Not what the cops say they were doing, but what What they they were were actually actually doing. doing. Right. Lots of questions. It's useful sometimes to have a microcosm uh, of the of larger society. You know, we spent a long time uh, on this show just talking about what does and does not keep people safer. And look, if having more police on the streets and spending more money on police budgets reduced crime. Right. I I would support it more. Sure. But But it it doesn't. doesn't. And so, again, you have a you have it here, a microcosm of an example of what police do and what spending all of this money on police budgets does and spending all of this money hardening schools. What does it do? Not protect your 19 children from being shot and two teachers, one of whom's husband died of a heart attack. Yeah. Wow. What a tragedy that was. Yeah. Just so sad. Poor guy died of a broken heart, essentially. Yeah. And then um, the NRA uh, is deciding not to cancel the annual meeting that it had scheduled for Houston. It's going ahead today. Yes, starting today. Texas Governor Greg Abbott has pulled out of his live appearance. Mm -hmm. He's going to give a pre-recorded video address. But Donald Trump is still supposed to go. And Ted Cruz. Yep. And I just have to shout out South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem, who uh, flies under the radar. But she was the one who was... Uh, strong arming the Cheyenne River Sioux tribe into not having checkpoints at the edges of their reservation to try to control the spread of COVID-19 when the South Dakota government was just like, whatever, we don't don't care. We're not going to do anything. Uh, Yeah. So a lot of of good guys there at the at the NRA um, annual convention. A bunch of their musical guests have pulled out. Do you know Don McLean was going to play there? I was shocked when I read that <laughs> because Don McLean is one of those people that I would expect to be one of the, the last people in America who would perform at an NRA convention. Yep, he's a big Second Amendment guy, I aye, guess. Aye, aye. Yeah, we might get to talk about the Second Amendment a little bit later in the show, too, with our yes. constitutional Yes, we scholar. will indeed. Uh, other news, there's, a, there's another... Mueller report in town. Yeah. Apparently, the Justice Department has released a, a heavily redacted 37 page report by Team M. Apparently, this group of investigators and prosecutors uh, who, uh, I guess, concocted what is being described as an alternative Mueller report. Uh, they were focusing on connections between Trump campaign chair Paul Manafort and businessmen and politicians who were friendly to Russia. And this was a funny line. Uh, The report says Manafort, who worked for Trump's campaign without pay, expected to improve his financial situation as a result of ties to a potential Trump administration. Wow. (laughs) That didn't work out the way he did. The idea that you have to even do you even have to say that? What a a novel idea attempting to enrich yourself by cultivating powerful connections. Gosh. What, what was he, Wish I had thought of that. I know. What, wow. What a, what a unique figure Manafort is and having that <laughs> expectation when he goes to work for a campaign. Good God. So I don't know. There's a bunch in this report that's about a supposed peace plan for Russia and Ukraine mm-hmm. that was being concocted between Manafort Behind and others. Yeah. Manafort would be a special representative for the process. And it was going to give Donald Trump the opportunity to, you know, facilitate peace in Ukraine a couple months after the inauguration. Um, 
It was apparently noted by Manafort to be a backdoor to Russia controlling eastern Ukraine. Yep. But honestly, I don't know if that's also just a gloss over basically I, what the Minsk agreements kind of would have achieved. It, it is. If I it think that's allowed, what it's coming to. Yeah, yeah. But it allowed these two separatist uh, uh, regions who are now recognized by Russia to maintain their independence. Mm-hmm. You know, is that Russian control? I, some would say yes. Some would say this is, you know, these regions charting their own course, which right. is, you know, d- has a desire to be friendly with their powerful, wealthy neighbor. Um, but it also says the plan wouldn't go anywhere because Trump wanted Trump seemed to favor the the total territorial reunification of Ukraine, including Crimea, yeah, including Crimea, which so, is a non-starter. Right. You know, there were two things that bothered me very much about the release of this report, too. One is that it was so heavily redacted. Mm-hmm. What they actually did is they put this report side by side with the actual Mueller report and they blacked out everything that was blacked out in the Mueller report mm-hmm. so that they read identically. So even though this is being billed to us as an alternative Mueller report. The real guys who right. were really, they weren't afraid of the truth. It actually says pretty much the same exact yes. thing that the Mueller report yes. says. That's yeah. number one. Yeah. Um, number two is it puts the Biden administration in this odd position of, you know, when they are defending the redactions of actually defending the Trump people's position yeah. on these on these issues. That's yeah. got to be uncomfortable. I guess. I mean, you def- it, it, in all of these cases, when the Biden administration comes in and is defending Trump administration positions, usually what they're doing is def- defending the authority of the institution. Yes, that's right. Which is good if the institution is worth defending. Right. You know what I mean? And in many, many of these cases, it is not. Yeah, exactly. There were a couple of other interesting stories that I wanted to let our listeners know about. Michelle, first, we spoke a few weeks ago um, about a new domestic terrorism bill that was working its way through the Congress. This was in the immediate aftermath of the uh, the Buffalo shooting. So the bill would have created an office inside the Department of Justice that would have focused on white supremacists, on militias, especially out west and and the like. Mm-hmm. Uh, racist groups that are that are dangerous because they're armed. Well, that bill died a quick death yesterday in the Senate in a 44 to 44 vote on passage. The bill needed 60 votes to pass. All 44 of the yes votes were Democrats. All 40. I'm sorry, seven, 47. All 47 of the no votes were Republicans. Not a single Republican thinks that Armed white supremacist, racist militia members are a threat to the public health and public safety in the United States. So it's dead. It's over. We also told our listeners at the beginning of the week about a new book published by former White House senior advisor Kellyanne Conway. Mm -hmm. Uh, She says in the book that she told President Trump uh, to his face that he had lost the election. Well, this morning, Trump said on his social media page, quote, Kellyanne Conway never told me she thought we lost the election. If she had, I wouldn't have dealt with her any longer. She would have been wrong. And she can just go back to her crazy husband. Man. <laughs> I have to say, I believe Donald Trump. Yeah. Because yeah, I don't sure. think anybody had the guts to say, Mr. President, you lost the election. They'd be banished forever. I agree. Uh, and finally, there's a new poll out. In the Wyoming congressional race, where Liz Cheney is facing a challenge from attorney Harriet Hageman, the poll uh, was commissioned by the conservative Club for Growth, and it shows Hageman with 56 percent and Cheney with 26 percent. Wow. 
Cheney, though, says that she's optimistic about her chances because of the losses in Georgia of Trump-endorsed candidates. Personally, I think Liz Cheney is toast, and if she had any brains, she would run as an independent and try to draw Democrats. I think you're right. I think that would be smart of her to do because Democrats, a lot of them just long to vote for a Republican, actually. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. And, and you know, this is this is the weird situation we find ourselves in. Liz Cheney's no hero. No. In any respect. Right. No. She's a neocon. She's a war lover. Her father's Dick Cheney, for God's sake. And now people are like, oh, poor Liz Cheney. They have so disrespected her. Yeah. You know? Well, screw the whole state of Wyoming if that's the case. Yeah. But anyway, this is a fun race to watch. So so, uh, we're going to keep our eyes on it. We're going to go to a short break. We've got terrific guests today. We have Mark Sloboda, who's going to talk about Russia and Ukraine and Iran and a bunch of things. We have Kim Keenan, who's going to talk to us about these Supreme Court decisions. Jody Evans, one of the co-founders of Code Code Pink. And the always popular Dennis Rogatiuk. Sorry, Dennis. I do that every time he's on. We're live in D.C. We're going to be back after this short break. You're listening to Political Misfits. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou. I'm here in the studio with my friend Michelle Witte. Russian troops continue to advance in eastern Ukraine and to tighten control in the Crimea. And the Russian foreign ministry said this morning that peace talks with Ukraine are frozen, that's the word they used, and are not taking place. Meanwhile, the Washington Post has multiple articles today about the extent to which the Biden administration has helped Ukraine from money to weapons to physically targeting Russian generals for assassination. And the New York Times reports that while the West screams that Russian blockades of Ukrainian ports are stopping the shipment of grain, what they're not saying is that the U.S., NATO and EU countries sanctions against Russia are prohibiting Moscow from purchasing the fertilizer necessary to grow the grain in the first place. We're joined by foreign affairs and security analyst Mark Sloboda. Welcome back, Mark. John, Michelle, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on Political Misfits. Thank you for that, Mark. The Ukrainians say that they're ready to negotiate peace with Russia. We heard President Zelensky say that a week ago, but that the peace will not, it cannot include any territorial concessions. So that's a non-starter. Even Henry Kissinger said this week, of all people, that Ukraine will have to cede the Donbass and Crimea to the Russians in exchange for peace. Isn't it, it, until this happens, though, it seems like we're going to see an awful lot of unnecessary deaths and an awful lot of protracted fighting. Will we not? What do you think? Yeah, um, the Kiev regime, uh, depending on which official you're talking to and which day it is, they have swung back and forth over their willingness uh, to um, even engage in further peace negotiations. Last week, everyone from their foreign minister to Zelensky himself was saying it was uh, impossible. It wouldn't happen, that the battle could only be won on the battlefield and that peace negotiations were. Uh, you know, pointless. 
Um, and now, um, after uh, in succession, uh, several um, Kiev regime fortifications uh, and uh, towns uh, have um, fallen to uh, allied Russian and Donbas forces in the east. Suddenly, uh, when they're speaking to the right audience, they suddenly bring up the possibility of returning to peace negotiations again. Uh, but yeah, obviously they are refuting um, the idea of uh, any type of territorial concessions, seemingly even territory that has been outside of their hands uh, since 2014 right. when, when they overthrew the government, the last legitimate democratically elected government in Ukraine back in 2014. And this um, – uh, this was punctuated home by the one of the chief uh, political advisors uh, to uh, the Kiev regime, President Zelensky, Alexei Arestovich, whom is is known as Zelensky's brain, mm. um, a a kind of big intellectual and propagandist uh, figure in Kiev, and uh, he replied back to the suggestion uh, by Kissinger. Um, you know, in, in, in typical style, I would say, uh, in an interview, uh, he said, go F yourselves with such proposals, you dumb Fs to trade Ukrainian territory a little bit. Are you effing crazy? Our children are dying soldiers. So on, uh, this will never happen. Um, wow. <laughs> so, um, I, it's just me. Whatever you may think of Henry Kissinger, a war criminal, uh, you know, a genocidal maniac, a Machiavellian. <laughs> I don't think anyone would suggest that he is at the same time not one of the world's senior statesmen. Yes. And he was principally responsible for engineering the Sino-Soviet split and uh, China's cooperation uh, with uh, the United States economically, uh, the institution of the one China policy that helped bring about the victory uh, in the Cold War for yes. the United States. So, um, yeah, I mean, you have to at least respect him for that. So I, I, I'm not so sure that Adopting a tone like this, um, uh, coming you know right from the, the top figures in the Kiev regime, is going to win them any more friends in the West. Uh, even the New York Times was putting out an editorial by the board uh, a week ago. The war in Ukraine is getting complicated. American isn't ready, where they suggested that Biden explained to Zelensky that there is limits to how far America will get involved and how much they will supply him, and that he had best return to the negotiating table. And if even the New York Times is going yeah. there, considering some of what they've put out, it, yeah. it's um, it, there seems to have been a shift in tone in Washington, at least among some circles. Well, I wanted to ask you about that, actually, because, you know, at the beginning of the war, in February, we were getting nearly unanimous votes in both houses of Congress on aid and materiel to uh, to the Ukrainians. In this most recent 40 billion, there were 50 Republicans that voted no. 50. That's a lot um, in a short period of time. And so I think it's right. I think the New York Times editorial board is right that. This isn't just going to go on forever where it's just going to be a blank check for, for the Ukrainians to to procure anything and everything that they want. We're going to get to a point, and I think the point's going to be sooner rather than later, where 
either the American people or the American people and the politicians who represent them are going to say, you know what, enough already. I have an idea. Why don't you guys go to the negotiating table in some neutral third country, you know, capital city and work this out? Because this isn't going to go on forever. You live a lot closer to this than I do. Can you see that happening? Yeah. Um, at the same time, we have to remember that we have figures such as uh, U.S. Senator uh, Manchin, uh, uh, Boris Johnson uh, in the U.K., and even, yeah. even Olaf Scholz and van der Leyen, yes. the, the head of U.S. foreign policy, all saying that there can be no, no negotiated outcome. That there can only be victory, that, that Russia must be defeated, um, and that they would not even accept a Ukrainian surrender. I mean, even if the Kiev regime, even if Zelensky wanted to surrender and could get the idea behind, uh, you know, past his own far right ultra nationalists, you know, that that are the state within a state uh, in Kiev, they wouldn't even. His foreign backers wouldn't let him. So um, I, I don't think that there's any you know, uh, firm sentiment in favor of it yet, but that clock is ticking. And those, those, uh, U S representatives that voted against it are a sign of that. And that is emboldened by the fact that, um, uh, gasoline prices at the pump are through the roof. Yes. Inflation, uh, is entering double digits, even in the United States. Yes. And Biden's approval rating is down to 36%. And this is all a result of blowback, uh, from the U S uh, sanctions war on yeah. Russia, uh, yeah. which is frankly, at least at the moment, having a, a greater effect on them than it is on Russia. The Washington Post today said that one of the first things that Joe Biden did when he became president was to instruct Tony Blinken, the secretary of state, to rebuild U.S. relationships with its European allies that he said had been damaged or even destroyed during the Trump administration. This article said that that allowed the U.S. to command the strength that it now commands in this Russia-Ukraine war. It goes on to say that it was this planning that has allowed the U.S. to stay one step ahead of Russia throughout the course of the war. I'm not exactly sure what that means. I went over this article twice. I still don't know what it means. Um, Foreign Minister Lavrov did say a couple of months ago that Russia was surprised by the swiftness and ferocity of the sanctions. But the Russians don't seem to be suffering appreciably from these sanctions. Give me your thoughts on on sanctions and on their impact. Are they as devastating as the West wanted them to be and expected them to be? Yeah, no. Uh, first of all, I, I'm not quite so sure that they were surprised by it. This may have been a historical statement. In fact, by I remember you and I talking about yeah, that. You're talking yeah, about this because I certainly predicted them, and every indication from the very detailed plan to to deal with it that the Russian central bank has put forward have have shown that that they long knew this was coming. Yeah. Perhaps not the the um, uh, the Western response where uh, the pressure on Western companies to pull out of doing business in Russia of their own accord, although that largely hurt them <laughs> and their market share uh, more than than it you know really deprived Russians so much from not being able to buy McDonald's or IKEA or or um, you know the like. Um, because there's enough domestic substitutes right. that are markets are, are are booming as a result. But um, do you know what the the first quarter economic results are in the U.S.? Uh, first quarter, yes. Uh, we talked about it on the show, and now it, it escapes me. 
Yeah, it contracted 1.4%. That's right. That's right. The U.S. economy contracted 1.4% yes. in the first quarter. Do you, do you know what the damage to Russia's economy was during the first quarter, how much it contracted? No idea. It didn't. It grew plus 3.5%. Isn't the, yeah, the ruble per- performing best against the dollar of any other currency? Oh, yeah. The ruble is, performing, uh, is the best performing currency in the world right now and is at a position far better than it was at the beginning of the conflict. Those, those are the realities. I mean, I know Western politicians don't want to admit that. Jen Sasaki told us that the Russian economy is destroyed and the ruble is worthless and, and, and our sanctions were bringing the Russians to their knees. But uh, if this is Russia on its knees, well, then I'd hate to see them on their feet. Yeah. Jeez, oh, man. Thanks for putting that into perspective. Um, I, just as a follow up to that, you live in Moscow and I was curious about whether your daily life or your daily routine have changed since the imposition of sanctions. Have you noticed anything going into the grocery store that you can't get X, Y, and Z product anymore? Or is anything more difficult for you now than it was before the war? Okay. So I, um, my wife and I, we live kind of a, a, a middle-class salary and lifestyle, but we live in a working class area because we wanted to be near the forest. But, um, so the what has changed daily in our lifestyle? Okay, so we saw you know the economy tightening, uh, and there we are seeing about ten percent inflation overall, which is basically what they're also seeing uh, in in the United States. Absolutely, and Germany. Germany, the producer price index is up plus thirty three percent, and inflation is in uh, higher than in in Russia. So uh, take that. But we stopped eating out. Uh, every two weeks, like, uh, you know, takeout like we had we had been. And we switched to some lower priced uh, 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 products in our, our weekly uh, grocery basket that, you know, that we order online, like most normal people in capital cities, I guess, <laughs> do these days. Um, and um, uh, I mean, we didn't buy a whole lot of foreign uh, imported items to begin with, because Russia makes it their domestic agriculture and food industry is is fairly developed so um i mean that that's about it um so not a huge uh, life-changing difference and i have seen no real change i mean the grocery stores are still full of everything i mean there's nothing missing um and people are shopping no change in shopping habits that i can see you know big change i mean we're seeing the same number of people filling up their baskets um you know i i I happen to live again in a working class area where there's no small number of alcoholics around and they don't seem to be hurting for money for their, their beer and vodka or whatever. So, um, uh, I haven't seen any huge economic changes, but certainly not like the West envisioned. What about security wise? Uh, you know, we, we have this vision here in the United States of political instability, which is the goal of course, of, of this whole Ukraine policy. Are you seeing armored personnel carriers at major intersections? Are you seeing increases in the number of police or or, uh, the military, anything like that? Well, I mean, do you guys actually think that happens no. here? I mean, no. No, okay, <laughs> no I don't. That sounds like Washington, <laughs> D.C. for months after the U.S. election, <laughs> after the contested election results to me. No, I mean, there's absolutely none of that. And no. in fact, if anything, uh, both – uh, according again, not to government polls, forget those, even though they always come out the same, but independent anti 
Putin government, oppositionist pollster, often funded by the West Levada, shows that both support for the, the Russian intervention in Ukraine and Putin's uh-huh. approval rating are in the 80s, 80 percent. Right. I mean, it, it's, it's higher than it was before. I've heard so that repeatedly from, rally around the, for, yeah, from my Russian friends. Huge, yeah. Yeah, there has been a huge rally around the flag effect. And if anything, in the past three months, it has only increased. It, it, I do not see any signs of it waning uh, whatsoever. I mentioned in the opening that there are complaints in the West that the Russians are not allowing shipments of grain to leave Black Sea ports. But what the media aren't saying is that the West is not allowing shipments of fertilizer into Russia because of the sanctions. Um, What do you think this is going to do to global food shipments and food availability, especially in light of the fact that the United Nations is now saying that the Horn of Africa is heading into its worst drought, worst agricultural disaster in decades? They they actually need this grain. Yeah. Okay. so. This is uh, Russia is the biggest wheat importer in the world, uh, exporter Expo- in the world, yeah. right? Um, and this is uh, Ukraine also ranks up there in the top ten. All right, so uh, if uh, Ukraine is is to some degree taken off the board already, uh, then there is an even greater effect by uh, inhibiting Russia's ability to bring uh, its. Uh, wheat and grain and sunflower oil and all these other uh, commodities that it is the world's number one exporter of to the market, particularly to the the, the uh, Africa, to uh, North Africa and even Sub-Saharan Africa, where where uh, you know the two countries together are the biggest supply of food to these regions, right. uh, which. Desperately, I mean, uh, Egypt uh, imports 90% of its food, right? I mean, uh, the last time that it's going to see huge. Uh, destabilization, political instability there, because the Arab Spring was the last time there was a, a big rise in uh, food prices uh, that helped exacerbate that crisis uh, uh, fairly high. And what the West isn't reporting is that the reason that uh, Kiev can't get its products uh, to mark through its principal port, Odessa, in the Black Sea, is that it mined its own ports. <laughs> it, it, to, I mean, to prevent, you know, any uh, Russian uh, naval incursions there, it is true, not that there were any plans to, but Russia did present ships in the area as a potential threat, although I think that was uh, more likely as an attempt to draw off uh, and hold forces rather than any serious intent at a dangerous amphibious landing. Right. But um, they, they physically can't get. They've mined their own ports, and they've also forbidden any foreign ships that were in their ports, in, particularly Odessa, uh, at the start of the Russian intervention back in February from leaving. They're still there. Um, so, I mean, this is this is you know a, a, a case of again them shooting their themselves in the foot on this regard, but they certainly enjoy playing the martyr and the victim and and blaming Russia for this food crisis. Meanwhile, Russia, while it's true that the U.S. has not put sanctions directly on Russian wheat uh, and fertilizer like they promised to, or like they considered, they 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 I'm sorry, they didn't promise to. They were considering it, according to inside reports uh, in the White House. But 
the rest of their host of sanctions. They're preventing financial transactions. It's kind of hard for Russia to to get its grain to market when it can't ex, uh, when it's prevented from uh, you know conducting business through financial tra- transactions because of the U.S. control of the global financial architecture, the banking system, and so on. It's it's impossible for Russian ships to get insurance. Uh, uh, Western ports and uh, other ports around the world uh, refuse to take Russian ships, either because they're part of the sanctions or because the U.S. has threatened foreign ports with secondary sanctions just for doing business with Russia. So, uh, you know, to blame this uh, on Russia, you know, the, it is the U.S. and the NATO countries whose sanctions war is doing everything indirectly uh, that that inhibits Russia getting its grain uh, to the rest of the world's market, particularly the third world where it is needed the most. One last question, and it's unrelated to to Russia, but can you comment on what we are seeing this week in Iran? An Iranian military commander was assassinated in broad daylight in front of his home a few days ago, and then yesterday a supposed accident, accident in quotation marks, uh, took place at a sensitive facility that the UN says is for the manufacture of explosive triggers that could be used in a nuclear program. This explosion resulted in the death of an engineer and the injury of another engineer. Are, are we seeing a more aggressive Israeli or Israeli U S posture toward Iran? Um, and sure. what, what does this do for prospects for the JCPOA? Sure. I mean, uh, Israel has a, a long history of conducting assassinations in Israel Indeed. of nuclear scientists, of, of which they, they've they've killed dozens at this point, of uh, IRGC and and other uh, military and political officials, um, uh, cyber attacks, sabotage campaigns. It's nothing new, and Israel's not even being shy about it. I mean, there's a New York Times headline: Israel tells U.S. it killed Iranian officer. U.S. official says right, right, so, right. I mean, Right. They're, they're openly admitting to it. Yes. Right? Um, so, I mean, certainly Israel does not like the JCOPA, does, didn't want to see it succeed the first time, supported Trump uh, because he, he was against it and uh, has had chilly relations with Washington uh, since Biden, uh, you know, talked about restoring it. This could be, uh, it, I mean, it, it's likely, uh, you know, an Israeli attempt to help uh, dis- derail the floundering JCOPA negotiations. But the U.S. just did that today. Today and in the last 24 hours, right. they have seized in an Iranian cargo ship uh, carrying uh, a tanker carrying yes. oil, oil. Uh, in in the Mediterranean. And uh, according to uh, U.S. officials uh, uh, talking to the Western media, they're uh, uh, intend to ship the cargo to the United States mm-hmm. on a separate ship. I mean, they're going to steal the oil. It's piracy. piracy. I mean, this is yeah. clear off piracy. And I guess that's one way to help deal with the blowback uh, from the high energy prices is we'll just pirate <laughs> Iranian, <laughs> maybe Venezuelan ships carrying oil and steal it back to the United States. I, I, it's a plan, I guess. Yeah. Jeez, oh man. Well, we're going to leave it there on that lovely, delightful note. <laughs> That was the voice of Mark Sloboda. He's a foreign affairs and security analyst, and he joined us from Moscow. You're listening to Political Misfits. We'll be back after this short break.
Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. Oklahoma Governor Kevin Stitt signed a bill into law earlier this week that bans nearly all abortions beginning at the moment of fertilization. There are exceptions to protect the life of the mother and for rape and incest, but only if those are reported to the police when they happen. Besides, the Supreme Court has not yet, I'm sorry, let me rephrase that. Because the Supreme Court has not yet overturned Roe v. Wade, there is no law enforcement action associated with this bill. And this is the strange thing. Instead, private citizens can sue abortion providers and the people who get abortions for at least $10,000. The Tulsa Women's Reproductive Clinic said today that it has canceled all appointments. Other states have passed or are in the process of passing similarly restrictive laws, including in Texas, Idaho, Mississippi, and Alabama. Florida's right behind them. Meanwhile, in a direct blow to prisoners who are trying to get federal courts to hear evidence of their innocence, the Supreme Court ruled this week that federal judges cannot determine guilt for people convicted of state crimes, even when those people are obviously innocent. Crazy. We're joined by Kim Keenan, adjunct professor at George Washington University's National Law Center and former general counsel of the NAACP. Kim, welcome back. Great. Always good to be here. And you got all the fun stuff for me. <laughs> this is fun and enraging. I, in all total seriousness, I feel my heart rate increasing. Just reading the introduction to that, it makes me so angry. So let's start with Oklahoma. I get that some states want to get a jump on Roe v. Wade and ban abortion now, even if a clear majority of Americans supports a woman's right to choose. What I don't at all understand, though, is laws like those in Oklahoma and Texas that allow civil suits against people who perform abortions or who seek out an abortion. Where's the standing in something like that? How is it any of my business if my neighbor wants to get an abortion, why should it be my right to sue my neighbor if she decides to go to another state and get an abortion? You know, these laws um, that they're putting on the books are almost by definition punitive. I mean, these oh, yeah. are clearly people who were mean to people in school. And, and I was like, OK, I'm right. This is the law. Now I get to follow you around and see. Right. Or getting an abortion. So I, I, don't, I don't think they realize that they're sending this out into the universe and what's going to come back because you're right. There wouldn't be standing, but the law creates the standing for them in the law. And so if your neighbor is getting an abortion and you decide you want to sue them for 10, I mean, think about this. They've created almost a bounty. Yes. I can sue you for at least $10,000 if you go to this abortion clinic. What if you just went to see what was happening? Now now you're outed. People got now you got to talk about it in public. I mean, I think they don't realize how badly people are going to misuse this. It's going to turn neighbor against neighbor in the service of a law that is against the will of more than 50% of the people the United States, and it's just going to be, you, you think you talk about legal problems now, when people start to sue and counter sue for this, because they will have their privacy violated. They will have, I mean, they're not public people. You can't just run around following people and say, I think she's getting an abortion. I'm going to go file suit in court. <laughs> the public 
Oh, yes, I do. Absolutely. So let me ask you again, coming back to this issue of standing, is it that the law in Oklahoma and Texas creates standing for these total strangers to just be able to sue you? Is that where standing comes from? It's putting the right in the in the law for people to be able to sue. In other words, it was written like a normal law. The only people who could prosecute it, right, would be prosecutors. Right. But but this law is written in such a way that it says, hey, you know what? We probably have better things to do with our, our civil servants that we pay. Why don't we just deputize everybody to do this for us? And guess what? We'll give you a reward if you do this. You can sue for at least $10,000. You see, the reproductive clinic was like, we're not doing this. With yeah, we're not doing this. The appointments, but I mean, as you know, all of this stuff is just like it, it, it's like people have taken. It's like they went too far. It's like this is what happens when you move, turn the boat too quickly. It turns over, and and all of these laws that the Supreme Court is tacitly um, ginning up, they're all going to turn over on the way it looks like in real life. I mean, and, you, and this is why people worry that the justices are so far removed. They're freaking out because people protested in front of their homes. Like that's right. Violation of their sanctity. But they think it's going to be different, these people in Oklahoma, about people following people and peering in their homes and following them to the drugstore. You, you, you think it's, it's going to be easy for them? I mean, you know, I, I, I worry that we have... We have taken the pendulum and swung it so far one way that now we got to swing it back the other way. And somebody better figure out where the middle is because Amen. a lot of are really going to be affected by this. The, the right to privacy that the Supreme Court imputed in Roe has been used in a whole bunch of other landmark cases, like the legalization of gay marriage, for example. If Roe is overturned, does then that call into question the legality of these other cases? If, for example, if Alito's opinion says that there is no constitutional right to privacy and these other decisions were predicated on the fact that there is an imputed right to privacy, what, what happens to all these other cases? They're coming back. <laughs> oh, my God. This is going to set us back 70 years. Did you not notice in the in the draft, I love this, the draft that was leaked, that it said, oh, this is only about abortion. And yeah. That's why he did it. Yeah, he said it. Well, you know, gay marriage isn't rooted in our history and our Constitution. So what? what so, so you're saying, oh, it doesn't apply to anything else, just this. But but that's what the Supreme Court is made of. We look at just this and then we extrapolate from this just this and say, what else can we do? Well, the first thing that goes is gay marriage. That's like the first thing that goes. And, and, and it's such a slippery slope. I think that's what people don't realize. Once you go down the path, then all the things that are on the path are there. I don't know if you guys remember. Remember when the, 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 they struck down. The, the key portion of the Voting Rights Act. What happened? Oh, sure. All of the states, and practically these same states, I might note. Yeah, good point. All of them went out and and put into place the most draconian voting laws. Yes, they humanly could. So, so 
the history is there. Of course they're coming after all this other stuff. But I, I have news for people. You know, the world, once the world changes the way it does, you can't just turn it back 70 years overnight. And and there are real people whose lives hang in the balance. This is this is an awful period of the court. And history will judge it as such because it is it is not the best. It is not, you know, you usually expect them to be a little in an ivory tower, but not so in an ivory tower that they don't have any ability to comprehend what this is going to look like in real time. I'll add that uh, in the Georgia primary that took place on Tuesday, uh, several newspapers did note that because of that Supreme Court decision on voting rights, it was illegal and you would face arrest for giving water to people waiting in line to vote. It is now illegal to do that. You cannot provide water or food to people waiting in long lines to vote. And where do those long lines usually take place? They take place in minority neighborhoods. Yeah, where there's only one voting machine. That's it. Where there's one voting machine or only one location in the precinct in which to vote. Exactly. And so they, you know, they're like, oh, well, you can, since we can't, you know, culturally make you not stand there because, you know, some of those people, I mean, you know, and NAACP, you know, they work on this year round. They're not fair weather activists. Right. They work on year round and they will stand. If the, if the rule is now we stand in line 10 hours, we'll, we'll be, hey, we'll bring our own water and we'll bring a snack, and we'll stand in line 10 hours. We'll do what it takes. And I think, um, you know, that's kind of irked people that they're willing to do this. But they're doing this not just for a particular election. They're doing this because this is an American right. It is It is so quintessentially American that when we do these tortured things to voting rights, it really says we don't believe. Yes. On laws. Yes, indeed. Hey, let's talk about this Supreme Court ruling in the uh, on this Arizona case on Monday. Uh, you know, w- when when I first read about it, learned of it. I couldn't believe it. The court ruled that actual innocence is irrelevant. If a person is wrongfully convicted of a crime at the state level, in the state courts, and is sentenced to death because he had a bad attorney, and then he has a bad appellate attorney who loses the appeal, he cannot go to the federal courts to argue innocence, and he'll still be put to death even if the evidence shows that he's factually innocent. I'm sorry, but how is this justice? I understand the ivory tower that you mentioned, but this is just wrong. I'm going to give you, I'm going to cut through all the legalese and I'm going to give you an answer. It is not justice. Okay. As Justice Sotomayor said, it is perverse and illogical. It, it, it's not even justice. It's just pr- procedural nonsense. I mean, if the real issue is giving states first bite at the apple, then let the federal court remand with instructions. Because if Exactly. Then we have a problem. In law school, you learn that the Supreme Court is right because they're the final court. But even then, if you're wrong, no argument, no slight of procedural handwork can make you right. If the person is actually innocent, then there is no justification for executing them in the name of states' rights. This puts us on historically shaky ground because I'm I'm telling you, what this is going to look like in real time is going to be 
poor people get poor justice. Yes. Rich people get rich justice. Because if you got the money to get somebody good, because let's face it, if you get somebody bad and you pay for them, your family, everybody, you know, you can sue them if they mess up. Right. You know, and usually it's not going to be death penalty cases. But this opens the door up for all kinds of cases. I think it's more egregious because the person's life is at stake. But if it were, there are lots of other types of cases where this happens because people just can't afford. And and in this, and and, you know, I don't want to be like just because you got a public defender, they're not. That is not true. Everywhere doesn't have. I mean, DC, it's a hard job to get a public defender job. They they best schools in the country. We we're not talking about just any old body gets to be your public defender. These are people who went to the top law schools in the country, but in parts of you know. Maricopa County. Right. Right. All around um, Arizona or in a super big city where they don't have the resources. You know, you, you're one of a thousand cases. It's not going to get the best work the person could do. So we're not talking about, you know, there's these, you know, 50 bad attorneys out there and they're going around making sure everybody goes to jail. No, we're, we're talking about a problem that's systemic and depends on the locality about what the resources they have are, how many cases the people have, and whether they have experience or the training for this type of case. And so, you know, it, it, you know it's like you see these two cases and people always want to give you the ones with bad facts. You know, people are so worried that there's a child abuser. Of course, that's very, very important. But if he's not, we don't want to kill him. We don't want to kill him. That's right. He's not. We don't want to kill him because that's us. If if we were somewhere else and it was like, oh, too bad, so sad, we made a mistake, then, then we wouldn't be in America anymore. We'd be somewhere else. You know, the NSA whistleblower, Tom Drake, um, had all of his assets frozen when he was arrested. And so he was forced to use federal public defenders and they were geniuses. The Tom Drake was charged with with nine felonies, including seven counts of espionage. And every last one of those case, those cases, those charges were dismissed. He was innocent. He was factually innocent. But can you imagine if this had been in Maricopa County, for example, or Harris County, Texas, or something like that? Um, And that kind of leads me to the next question that I have for you. Part of the problem is that public defenders are so grossly overworked and underpaid in so many parts of the country, one of the attorneys in this Arizona case said that he was paid $2,000 for 700 hours of work. That's, it's about two and a half dollars an hour, a little bit less. That's not the billable hours that people teach about in law school. So no, it, it, it is not <laughs> something that anybody in their right can discuss. So I want to be paid $2,000 so I can work 700 hours. And again, if you're doing that, and that's not your only case. It means that you're not eating or sleeping like a normal person. Right. But, you know, and I do want to go back to this. The federal prosecutors, um, public defenders, they get they get all the same kinds of training and access and resources that federal prosecutors get. Uh-huh. That's the reason why, again, they're not hot. You know, you don't get that job because you were walking by and you just said, I'm a lawyer and I'd like to be a federal public defender. No, you're, you're somebody who's recruited, who has the opportunity to not just go to work for the federal government and be a prosecutor, but also to be a public defender. So they tend to be, again, you know, if you were to do a quiz of the, of the attorneys that represented him, you'll find that they went to top schools, that they had great training, that they 
had resources. I mean, look, the, the, these cases in Arizona, they didn't do any investigation. I can tell you as a trial lawyer, if I take a case and I do no investigation, that I lost is not even a surprise. It's, it's, it's the thing that's going to happen. Right. Good point. I'm sorry to say that we are out of time because that was the best conversation I've had in a very long time. Uh, Kim Keenan, we want to have you come back. That was uh, Kim Keenan, adjunct professor at George Washington University's National Law Center and former general counsel of the NAACP. Uh, you are listening to Political Misfits. We have a lot more coming up in the second hour, so stay tuned. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou. We are taking a look in this hour at some long-term political projects, uh, ones addressing hunger, achieving disarmament at home and abroad, bringing morality into politics. Uh, and we're looking at all of these in light of the Davos meeting that just ended. But before we get into that, because we were talking about updates um, from the Ubalde school shooting in Texas, the director of the Texas Department of Public Safety uh, was just giving a press conference about an hour ago and has provided more information about the timeline, which doesn't answer questions. But remember, John, we talked about that tactical team that supposedly arrived about an hour after um, local police got there. That's not what happened. They were there uh, shortly after noon. So they got there only about 10 or 15 minutes after other police officers got there. But the local police officers and the officer who was controlling uh, the the incident had them hold back. And so there's a lot of controversy now um, about also whether uh, a, a 911 call that came in at 1215 that described eight or nine children still being alive, uh, whether those children died between 1215 and 1245. Right. When they or 1 p.m. when they actually went in and and killed the suspect. So, again, more questions, apparently a really emotional um, press conference there and uh, local police saying the reason they acted the way they did, the reason they delayed the way they did is because they thought that it wasn't an active shooter situation, but a barricaded suspect so that he was in by himself. I mean, they are saying they thought that. Who knows what actually happened? It's just the more information you get, the more questions are are raised, really. In the meantime, I'm just now getting a breaking news update saying um, that that the police chief said this was not the right decision. Yeah. Because now they're telling us that as the shooting was taking place, children were inside the school calling Calling 911 and begging for help. Yeah. Yeah. Which doesn't really sound like... I mean, how long can that go on before right. you think, well, maybe this guy isn't just locked in a room by himself? And you can hear shots being yeah. fired for anyway, heaven's sake. It's a mess. I don't think you or I should really try to right. make sense of it no. in real time. But since I had change. said earlier that the, you know, the the tactical team arrived an hour later. Oh, no, they didn't. <laughs> they arrived pretty quickly. They were just only allowed to go in an hour later. 
So there's a pretty bleak update. And now we're going to move on to talking about what, bleak on a larger scale, really. <laughs> but I, I have a feeling our guest is going to give us some hope as to uh, what actually can be done against some of these large scale problems we face. We're joined by co-founder of Code Pink, Jody Evans. Jody, thanks for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. And hi, John. Hi, Jody. Welcome. Thank you. Jody, I, I wanted to have this conversation because um, economic anthropologist and author uh, Jason Hickel reminded me uh, on Twitter of this 1996 paper from the American Journal of Public Health. The, it assessed the performance of capitalist and socialist countries when it came to some key measures of physical quality of life. And so in its measures of physical quality of life, the paper included things like infant and child death rates life expectancy, population per physician, daily per capita calorie supply, adult literacy rates, enrollments in secondary and higher education, et cetera. And so this, this report compared 123 countries covering 97% of the world's population at the time and using statistics mostly from the World Bank. And it found clearly that all of these quality of life measures improved as economic development increased, but also that in 28 of the 30 comparisons between countries at similar levels of economic development, socialist countries showed better outcomes. And I think this uh, kind of stuff really just sort of, it's just sort of shoved under the rug. And it seems important to recall as we have the World Economic Forum wrapping up its meeting in Davos. And so at that meeting, in addition to representatives from governments, executives at the World Bank and Bank of America, we have Bill Gates, we have the heads of Palantir, the heads of Pfizer, World Trade Organization, Microsoft, the CEO of YouTube, the president of the New York Stock Exchange, the very people who have built and imposed around the world through mechanisms like trade agreements and, and IMF loans, uh, the structure of exploitation that they uh, continue to profit from. And so it seems bizarre to me that every year we take them seriously when they say they're getting together to talk about building fair societies and safeguarding the planet. And so I wanted to ask, you know, uh, other than to completely ignore it, because these are very powerful people, how should we how should we actually treat this this annual Davos gathering? Well, I mean, I think ignoring it is actually a good idea. Mm. <laughs> You're not going to change it. And we give it power by paying attention to it. Mm -hmm. Do that with all of power. Look, we don't live in a democracy. We live in the most violent. I don't know where you live, but I live in the United States of America, mm -hmm. the most violent terrorist organization on the planet. Mm -hmm. So um, paying attention to it gives it power. Paying attention to them is what gives them power. And we have to take our attention away. And right now in this moment of history, mm -hmm. Um, that's what we all need to do. Um, and we need to quit agreeing to their laws and their and you say shoved under the rug. It's not shoved under the rug. It is eviscerated. It is, you know, that information is eviscerated. They don't want that truth to come out. They want to spin another tale and make you believe something different than what you're living through. Mm -hmm. And, you know, right now, when Congress just voted $40 billion for aid and um, weapons to Ukraine, that is a level, uh, that's the level of 
disconnect and lack of critical thinking that they have spawned instead of education. And all this has been done purposefully. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, back when I started being an anti-war activist 50 years ago, um, we had a strong anti-war movement. And we had three things. We had anti-war members of the Congress and the Senate mm-hmm. would speak out. We had anti-war members of, of business that would speak out. We had a uh, independent media that would speak out. Like today, the Pentagon Papers would never be published. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, I mean, matter of fact, Julian Assange is in prison for telling the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we had a strong and vibrant anti-war movement that was, you know, across the board. It was from academia to religion to, you know, to doctors to to people that like thought critically and understand clearly that war is never the answer, and it is really an insane mm-hmm. act. What do you think has happened? to uh, to crush that anti-war movement that you're mentioning, because I, w- I wonder if it's a you know, if you asked me to sort of guess, I think that, you know, pe- people are working. People are working very hard these days for uh, paychecks that don't go as far as they used to. And so everyone is a little bit more stressed out. Everyone is busier. I also wonder if the uh, now almost complete corporate capture of, of media has something to do with it, because, you know, who do you see talking about and analyzing our wars, but often people who are profiting from them. And so I wonder what, you know, what's what's been the change from the scene that you're describing from decades ago to to what we have now? But you're pretending like that's a result. But no, it's a, the, the cause. We were an effective mm. anti-war movement. And so, and so the cause ah. is that all that was changed purposefully, not accidentally. Mm-hmm. It doesn't arise out of what you just described. All of that was created purposefully. Um, you know, no, if you're an anti-war member of Congress, you're kicked out or you're, you know, shamed inside of Congress until you're silenced. Um, right. You're, you, the, the um, media has been fully bought by all the billionaires and they, you know, they're the tools of this uh, capitalist military industrial complex. You know, mm-hmm. war serves the war economy. So they, the, the capitalists need war because that is what serves their needs. That's what mm-hmm. keeps their power in place. So war is at the service of those bankers and that war economy. They're at the service of all of those people in Davos, you know, talking out of their ass about, you know, ide- you know, the same way U.S. is covered in this propaganda of the American dream that's the biggest nightmare, you know, on the planet. It's, mm-hmm. it's that they're talking about their societies and rebuilding our trust. Whoa, there's nothing that you should trust about a capitalist all day long. They are raping the the planet, your communities, mm-hmm. your life. And um, we we ha- first of all, we have to take away ourselves from raising what's happening there up and doing anything to talk about everything that they're trying to distract us from. What you're not hearing when they're talking about Davos is how many people are still dying in Afghanistan and Yemen from less weapons mm-hmm. and militarism. You're not Afghanistan right now is hell on earth. We created that using Afghanistan as a tool um, between Russia and U.S. So instead of raising up, what does that look like later? We're just raising up Ukraine and celebrating them for being our tools. 
or fight, mm-hmm. you know, trying to um, uh, really do a, a coup on Russia. Yeah, I mean, I think that's interesting. I think it's interesting. That the, you're right. The focus remains. The focus is always sort of shifted to uh, individual wars instead of war sort of generally as a as a concept and as a tool. And then also in each case, in each conflict, you know, it's war is war is a given that it's going to be the mechanism to solve it. And then it's just left to you to pick a side. And it does sort of take away the discussion of who always ends up benefiting from this. And, you know, since you mentioned this huge military aid package to Ukraine, I, I wanted to ask about, you know, I, I know Code Pink uh, addresses the issue of the global arms trade, calling on the U.S. to end arms sales and saying any economy that relies on selling weapons is doomed to fail its people. And I wonder, you know, if this is another case where you draw connections between our enormous arms export industry and the gun violence that we are, you know, still in the middle of uh, in, in the United States today, right? Most most recently in the most high profile way in the school shoot. Well, right. Is there any wonder that a country full of multiple generations of unprosecuted war criminals with a popular culture that glorifies war and an education system that glorifies the war's history and the Mm -hmm. largest arms industry on earth should have gun massacres? Like, why? Oh, dear. Of course, when you if you look at when that 40 billion is going to Ukraine and the uprising and in mass shootings in our streets, if you say that weapons and war is the answer, that comes home to your streets. Just like mm-hmm. when you create a situation in Afghanistan where the women now have no rights, um, it's going to be at the same time the rights are taken away from the women here here at home. Um, mm-hmm. We, when I look at what happens. In Texas, and I'm weeping. Those are the same tears I cry when U.S. bombs are hitting buses in Yemen of children. But we don't talk about that. How do you Mm -hmm. think the rest of the black and brown world feel when it's fine to shoot a a Palestinian journalist in the head because you don't like what she's saying? Mm -hmm. Or it's fine to bomb you? Uh, Afghan uh, women's hospitals or uh, Yemeni buses full of children or an entire country like Libya and leave it, Mm -hmm. you know, in utter chaos for the last decade. That's Mm -hmm. fine. It's not yet. None of it is fine. It's all insane. And the fact that we have swallowed it and swallowed and swallowed it makes U.S. thinkers crazy and not capable. It's part of the propaganda. It's part of the desensitizing and normalizing like Israel does. And Mm -hmm. the desensitizing of humanity is what capitalism wants. It just wants sheep to carry out its needs. And it's Mm -hmm. been able to create it. And it is not an accident. It has never been an accident. When they see something in their way, they figure out how to squash it, transform it, and co-opt it. Mm -hmm. Look at the people who run the military right now are women. They saw women (laughs) in their way, they co-opted in them, and they put them in front. Look at, you know, before that, it was... Um, it was blacks, you know, like, so let's just look at the co-opting of our fights. Um, they, they just keep co-opting all of them and they come, they have destroyed education. Our culture is militarized. And so we can't be surprised by what that looks like. We're in late stage capitalism. I, I read somewhere, I think in Forbes that, um, 
a billionaire is happening every 18 hours. I mean, we return to feudalism when we look at the discrepancy between rich and poor and the growth of poverty. And now with the the war in Ukraine, um, nobody's talking about how many people are going to starve in Africa and already starving and what that means in the disruption of trade and of the needs of the people. Um, what's mm-hmm. being glorified is war. What's being glorified is fighting back. But when, I mean, nobody's talking about the complexities of what Ukraine is and mm-hmm. um, that you know, in, in agreements, Ukraine was already agreeing to an autonomous zone that Kissinger brought up, brought up that they should just give back to Russia to stop this madness. Mm-hmm. That Kissinger, is, that, you know, we're to the right of Kissinger is the most frightening thought I've had all week. Right, right. No, I think um, I we talked about that statistic on the show. It was a, a million, a new billionaire every thirty hours, and the expectation Incredible. that a million people would fall into extreme poverty at roughly the same rate every thirty-three hours. So, just a real a picture of uh, a complete moral catastrophe. And I, you know, I wanted to ask on the topic of like uh, of uh, movements and fights being co-opted. I also know Code Pink is taking part in the Poor People's March on Washington next month. And that's an event that specifically calls for a moral revival and the, the reintroduction of a coherent morality into political discourse. Um, and, and I wanted to talk about, you know, how how do you convince people that morality e- should be part of political discourse when you're talking about a society where from the moment you are born, you are inculcated with this idea that the only viable uh, processes or products are ones that make money for the right people, you know, and that when you talk about morality and politics, it's always something like uh, legislation about who can and can't get an abortion and that kind of thing. I wonder how do you how do you bring the idea of morality back to public debate without uh, I guess, accidentally um, throwing support to the people who want to create a, a theocracy in the United States? Well, morality is different than religion. So mm-hmm. um, morality is really the, the core of like, how do we be human together? And it's formed in many ways across the world, you know, for mm-hmm. thousands of years. Um I really look to morality as like, what are the forms that we agree to that allow us to live, live and, and that value life actually that value life and those living it. And, and so that it can be furthered to those beyond you know, the seven generations beyond as, as it is said in the indigenous communities. But, you know, Every culture has its form of morality, which is different than fundamentalist religions. Um, Mm -hmm. Fundamentalist religions co-opt morality, um, but it's never about morality. I don't don't know what it's about. I've never really Mm -hmm. quite understood what all that's about or how it taps into brains. But I Mm -hmm. think it taps into a missing um, inside of us that if you can live in the process of a set of um, agreements that extend life, yours and those beyond you, then um, those agreements hold society together. And that's, that's kind of, you know, what, what's socialism. It's mm-hmm. the, the agreements that we live together with. Um, you know, right now, look at Cuba. You were talking about the 
statistics earlier. But here mm-hmm. we have Cuba, a country of love, a country without capitalism. Now, that doesn't mean without markets. Markets are not mm-hmm. capitalism. Markets have existed since humans, probably. But markets, um, capitalism is the exploitation of the worker um, for the benefit of the capitalist. And it's so here we have Cuba that um, invests itself in education, you know, being able to critically think, and in healthcare and food. You know, like what are the things they're looking at investing in? It's the health of their people. That is morality. That is the that is the place of love that we need to all live from so that we can live out of fear. But capitalists want us to live in fear. They want us to live thinking we live in scarcity instead of in abundance in, um, you know, not in community, but instead in alienation, they create the system. They create the culture that makes us believe the things that we can be used by fundamentalist religions that we can be used by capitalists. But, Mm -hmm. you know, look at China. Um, Its government is socialist. Their job is to take care of the people. In the United States, our government is capitalist. All the laws are to benefit capital, not the people. So we, and then we're surprised by how it behaves. We're surprised by, uh, we we read these beautiful words, but we're Mm. surprised because the laws are to benefit the rich. And so when you see a country like you described at the beginning, where um, China feels its job is no one dies from COVID. Its Mm -hmm. job is to clean the air. Its job is to figure out how to decarbonize. It feels that's its task. And its task is to take to task the billionaires and put limits on them. And, you know, call them out when they're doing, you know, when people are making money on the rich getting richer, they figure out that industry and they put an end to it. Um, Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, how do we want to live? And right now, my, you know, I've always said we don't live in a democracy, so that's that's not new for me. But what I feel like is that people are understanding it better. And Mm -hmm. it's the time to say, no, I reject all of this. Yeah, let me ask about more how we get there, because I think you're right. I think people are more and more realizing that the United States is not is is certainly not the democracy that they were told it was as kids. And, you know, again, we we have the spectacle of the World Food Program's executive director at Davos pointing out that we we have enough people here that just the individual individuals here this week with their individual wealth could end hunger. Right. Uh, But, you know, we need you. We need you in the long term. We need your engagement, your ingenuity, your creativity, as though, you know, the, the very reason we have such a hunger problem is not exactly the same forces that have, have put those people into the positions of wealth and power that they have. And so, you know, I feel like what we see constantly, you know, 
we are implored to call our Congress people to make change on on some topic or another gun control, abortion rights, what have you. We, of course, have this spectacle of U.N. officials begging billionaires for money to help them just make a dent in world hunger. Um, And I think people are really getting tired of it because it doesn't seem to work. And I don't want to completely dismiss the idea of pressuring elected officials, you know, the, the ones that we do have on any matter. But, you know, it is very clear that the majority in the U.S. support more gun restrictions than we have now. It's clear a majority support the abortion rights that are about to be gutted. It's clear a majority support a fundamental change in our public health system. Uh, I think there is majority support for a $15 minimum wage or higher. I'd have to double check that. But, you know, decades of phoning one senator after another, I don't know how much that has achieved. And so I wonder about, you know, what what are the tactics that people should try that might be more effective, right? What, what should people do if uh, the avenues that we keep being directed to are, are not ones that have been very effective? Well, I just want to add that a majority are against war. Just one mm-hmm. also, even though yeah. the, the budget for the war keeps going up. Okay, so it could think about a decade ago, we realized that we were not going to end war till we ended the war economy, which is capitalism. Mm-hmm. And that there is a peace economy. It is the giving, sharing, caring, thriving, relational, resilient economy without which none of us would be alive. Now, we said that 10 years ago, and we said, you know, the way everything's going, um, global inequality, $2 trillion worth of weapons sold each year, and um, um, and climate change, that, you know, if these continue, that the historically the only result has been fascism. And so given that, I call it our flood, what's the arc that you create to survive this flood? Because it's already moving. We do not have the power to stop this wave that we've started. But we do need to build arcs to get through the flood. And um, that is cultivating your local peace economy. Now, I always say I keep my finger in the dike by constantly scratching at Congress so that they know we're out here and we're not happy with what they're doing knowing Mm -hmm. I'm not going to stop Congress because they're paid for by the capitalists and the weapons industry. So they're paid for by the war economy and the weapons industry. That machine is the machine. It is the literal structure we live inside of in the United States. So thinking you're Mm going to change the structure you've agreed to is going to make you crazy. I know it makes a lot of people crazy. So I do not I always tell the truth. It's like, no, you are not going to change that. That is the structure. That's that's the Constitution. Those are our laws. They all benefit the capitalists. They are all, we're in late-stage capitalism. As Marx described, we're going to go off the edge unless that stops, and that means stopping the structure. So what you can do is not agree to the laws that, you know, are, it's like, the abortion laws, do not agree to them and help each other. Yeah. You know, do do all the things you have to do underground, get the blue state governors to agree to take care of, you know, to, to change the laws like we have with with um, with drugs. I'm, I'm one of the co-founders of the Drug and Policy Alliance. That we, so now you've got you, you've seen what states' rights can look like and you can support other states. Governor, mm-hmm. you of California, you agree to pay for anyone that needs an abortion to come here, be paid for, have a place to have it happen. And mm-hmm. the, the people of California agree to that. And you change the laws and make it work. And um, you just start showing, modeling inside the United States what something else can look like because we're not allowed to see China. We're not allowed to see 
a Cuba, you know, I mean, I want to say even Iran isn't a capitalist country. It's, mm-hmm. And when we go there to help them, what's quite amazing is that they're still they're, the, 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 the fabric of society is still holding because what they are is a peace economy, a giving, sharing, sharing economy. And that is at the core of their culture. They're not a militarized, capitalized culture. And so even Iran. So if you look at the countries we're destroying, they are countries that reflect a different way of being. And that's what capitalism can't have. That's why Mm -hmm. there was the Cold War. That's why there was the war on on people in Korea, war on people in Korea. Why? Because they believed in equality. Why on war on people in Vietnam? Because they believed in equality. You can't do that because in that, and if that works, that's going to show that we're not the answer. And so, you know, like, like you described, it's like we live inside of a lie. And if you live inside of a lie, you can be used. So the United States populace is used. It has been used. Their hearts and empathy have been used by this war in Ukraine to send more weapons, even after we have sent weapons to Korea and destroyed an entire country, sent weapons to Vietnam and destroyed an entire country, sent weapons Mm. to Afghanistan and Iraq and destroyed an entire country. What kind of brain, critical thinker, could think that is a good idea? Yeah. I think I think the message also of uh, having to destroy the war economy first is such an important one to actually focus on. Focus on who is profiting from these decisions and and keep your focus there is, uh, I think, yeah, a a really important first step. That was Jody Evans, co-founder of Code Pink. Jody, do you want to tell our listeners anything else you're working on right now? Yes, you've got to come up with you've got to go local in every way. Mm -hmm. Your local media is more movable. Your local politicians are more movable. Create Mm -hmm. other ideas locally. Cultivate a local peace economy. We have ways to do that. Codepink.org, we have a way for you to be in action every week to scratch at the um, war economy and those in power and those in greed, which is really crack cocaine. We should put them in jail, not the people in the streets that are forced into poverty that use it to alleviate their suffering. We need to put those that are on the crack cocaine of greed and power in jail. That was Jody Evans. Very powerful. Thank you so much again for joining us. We're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits and come right back. Stay tuned. Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou taking a look at a possibly important election in Colombia and also taking a look at what's going on in El Salvador, where a state of exception, uh, which basically means a suspension of most civil liberties, has been suspended as the country uh, attempts to, well, Uh, ostensibly attempts to crack down on um, gang violence. Joining us for both of these conversations is Dennis Rogatiuk. He's a writer, journalist, political analyst, and researcher based in Latin America. Dennis, thanks for being here again. Thanks a lot, Michelle, and thanks, uh, John. Welcome back. Let's start with Colombia and the election coming up there on Sunday, I believe. There's a lot of ink being spilled about the possibility of Senator and former Bogota Mayor Gustavo Petro, a leftist, winning. 
Petro spent some time in his youth as a member of an armed leftist group that was aiming to uh, further democracy in Colombia. His running mate, Francia Marquez, is described as an environmentalist with a race, gender and class conscious focus. This is the language of The New York Times. That sounds pretty good. Uh, You also have in the mix conservative uh, Federico Gutierrez and Rodolfo Hernandez, who's described as an anti-corruption populist. Uh, But I was going to start with uh, Petro and why he is getting so much attention, Dennis. Certainly, Michelle. Well, uh, I said the the figure of Gustavo Petro is already very widely known in Colombia and and also across across Latin America as Mm -hmm. I'll say not just as a mayor of uh, of Bogota, or should I say former mayor of Bogota, but rather mm-hmm. also as uh, as a man has that uh, has become like you know a um, a pole of attraction for the various left wing progressive uh, centrists and uh, liber- liberal forces in in Latin America that really see him and his leadership as as the on- the only real chance of uh, any any sort of a political significant political and economic change. Uh, in the country uh, now, mm-hmm. as, you, as you described, yes, Petro Petro was once a guerrilla member himself, uh, although although his group demobilized at the beginning of uh, 1990s. Uh, but unfortunately, the uh, uh, the the Colombian uh, uh, right wing, the, and the Colombia, of course, the Colombian military and the Colombian state have never uh, uh, forgotten about that. Which uh, which is the re- which is the reason that say say why which one of the reasons why. He has been very widely demonized across the different uh, media platforms mm-hmm. on one on one hand side, and on the but on the other hand side, uh, he has also um, the, the, the kind of political path, the kind, the kind of uh, uh, say pr- political proposals uh, that that he's been that he's been making do not do not don't place him in this uh, kind of a you know far left extremist. Uh, say a category, extremist category, which the, which the media wants to wants uh, always, you know, sort of uh, right. pigeonhole some. You're always to, so scary, yeah, yeah. Yes, although uh, in, in in many ways, in many ways, he, uh, he in, term, in terms of politics, he he's far more akin to um, to, to figures like, I say, Alberto Fernandez of Argentina or AMLO. Of Mexico mm-hmm. or Gabriel Boric of uh, of Chile, mm-hmm. as in mm-hmm. as in the fact that uh, he commands a, a very very broad coalition of forces mm-hmm. of forces uh, that include, you know, organizations, uh, you know, from from the Communist Party from the Colombian Communist Party, you know, all the way to uh, kind of uh, the disenfranchised disenchanted supporters of the Liberal Party and of like, some of the other establishment parties. Uh, I mean, that makes it sound like he has, you know, that having a broad coalition would seem to be important. I mean, I think, you know, since you compared him to AMLO, I think the fact that he, you know, the Mexican president has been able to get some things done is has uh, put him in the crosshairs of of U.S. media, for example. Certainly, although although I think we should, we, should, we really should distinguish the cases between uh, Mexico and Colombia, as uh, mm-hmm. the results of the Colombian legislative election have showed that uh, although. Um, Gustavo Petro's historic uh, pact uh, coalition did score a plurality of uh, of seats, I say, in Congress and and in Senate. They are still very; they'll still be very uh, lacking lacking majority. In mm-hmm. fact, in fact, I believe I believe that in Congress they only managed to achieve around uh, 
28 out of 130 seats as this was as uh, the total number of seats was, was really broken down across uh, different uh, different parties so they will they will be forced into um uh, say different say, coalitions agreements with other political parties uh, there you know different say centrist green liberal uh forces perhaps perhaps even even some of the um, more more conservative uh, organizations on in the case of amlo on the other hand and that this was never the case, this was never uh he never had to face this this kind of a situation, mm-hmm. as he has, uh, as Amlo has maintained a very solid majority throughout the last few years. So I believe, mm-hmm. so so I believe that uh, Gustavo Petro's presidency uh, will will be will be quite will be quite turbulent, I'd say, especially mm-hmm. in, in the first uh, year or so. Let me and this is, let me also. Yeah. Well, I want to ask about the sort of confines in which this campaign and this election are taking place, because I think it is possible to to overstate the import of one political figure. Uh, and, you know, RT journalist Elena Biar uh, pointed out the other day that with Colombia designated a major non-NATO ally and then last year embarking on this individually tailored partnership program, which is just sort of closer into the embrace of NATO, that the country's sovereignty is already compromised and and this agreement sort of cements its vassalage to the United States. And so under such circumstances, sure, you can have a leftist uh, executive, but he will be winning inside a fishbowl, right? He, he's constrained by the sort of uh, national structures that have already been imposed. And I, I wonder, you know, I wonder what you make of this, of this idea that, um, you know, this this victory is kind of made possible because the big deals have already been made uh, and that, you know, he might win, but the the structures that will be in his way of making some changes are going to be uh, maybe too much to overcome. Well, I, I, I personally believe that uh, Colombia's sovereignty has been compromised for a very, very long time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the country has effectively lost sovereignty ever since Alvaro Alvaro Uribe uh, became president mm-hmm. in uh, 2002. Uh, so I would say, you know, in the last 20 years, uh, you know, Colombia's um, uh, the, the, the Colombia the Colombian state have basically been been solidified as a sort of a as a marriage between uh, you know uh, big, uh, big corporations, the, fin- the financial sector, on one on one hand side, and the um, uh, the the, the narco paramilitary. Uh, sector on uh, on the other, as Alvaro Ribeiro was, was, was president, who was, was well known for his links to paramilitaries and to the various uh, cartels in the con- in, in the country. And added mm-hmm. to that is, of course, the mass uh, U.S. influence and the the amount of um, I say U.S. U.S. military aid and just 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 really the level of uh, U.S. intervention has been present in the country. Mm-hmm. So I would actually say that you know this, this designation as a Non-major NATO ally is mostly cosmetic. It is, is, is mostly mostly a reflection of the reality that has been present in the country mm. uh, for right. the last for the last several years. Now, uh, also, uh, you know, whether you know, so based on that, is it so the question is is Gustavo Petro being allowed to win? I, mm. I, I I certainly believe I believe that certainly not. Yeah. Certainly not, as uh, Gustavo Petro is still considered to be a major threat to the U.S. interest uh, in the country, because one of his one of his key uh, 
uh, promises will be to, to fulfill the um, uh, fulfill the, the peace peace agreement uh, signed in uh, 2016. With the FARC. Uh, which, which, with, uh, with the FARC and with the other guerrilla groups. Uh, restart mm-hmm. peace negotiations with the ELN, the other group uh, there, and put a, definitive, put a definitive end to the conflict. Now, putting a definitive end to a conflict would also imply putting a definitive end in the long term to, mil- to you know, U.S. military aid, which Colombia mm-hmm. currently receives as sort of the main reason for a long time, the, or one of the major reasons, has been has had to do precisely with the with the armed conflict. So, mm-hmm. uh, Gustavo Petro's resolution resolution and fulfillment of the of the peace agreement would be this would be the key step to to you know to Colombia's withdrawal from the U.S. Uh, sphere sphere of influence. And precisely mm-hmm. for this reason, uh, we've we've now seen um, you know the the kind of campaign that has been waged uh, against them. Uh, throughout the last I am glad to hear you weeks. describe the possibility of, you know, like his election uh, as possibly being of some import and having some consequences, because it does get tiring sometimes to just go, oh, as nothing can be done. Well, so the other thing is, you know, when you, when you talk about the the threat that he represents to the military, or at least to the, the aid that's been flowing in from the United States, uh, I wanted to ask you about how this is presented because the, the Times, in writing about Petro, uh, says that he has taken direct swings at the country's major institutions, most notably the armed forces, escalating tensions with military leaders and leading to concerns about the stability of Colombia's longstanding but vulnerable democracy. And this strong implication here is that it is Petro who is causing this instability, right? As you say, he he wants to fully implement the 2016 peace agreement that FARC and the other groups have abided by, but the Colombian government has just repeatedly completely ignored. Part of that would be ending uh, all of this U.S. military aid flowing into the country. That's all, you know, that is just abiding by an agreement that the Colombian government has already established. And yet it is treated as though Petro is the threat and not instead the military that you are implying wouldn't accept orders that it doesn't like from a democratically elected civilian leader. And it seems to me to be really upside down. And like, you know, if, if Colombia's democracy is is only made possible through the magnanimity of its military, which might at any point decide eh, we don't like we don't like the orders you're giving us, we're going to turn this country upside down. Obviously, it's the military that's the threat. But you are not ever going to see this presented that way, I think, in, in U.S. media. And so I, w- I wanted to get your thoughts on that presentation of uh, the real threat to Colombian democracy. Well, uh, Gustavo Pedro has been designated as, as a real threat to Colombian democracy, as a years ago. In fact, mm-hmm. in fact, uh, last year, last year, during the mass uprising in Colombia against the, go- the government of Ivan Duque, which was initially caused by a new te- by a new tax re- a new regressive tax reform you know during during this during that uprising um, following the repression following the uh, say the clashes between the protesters and uh, and the police uh, there were there were you know allegations started started spreading throughout uh, throughout Colombia that you know these these protests uh, were instigated by the FARC, this process was instigated by Venezuela, by by Cuba, and that Gustavo Petro was kind of was almost like like, like the leading man. In fact, if you if you take a look at some of the uh, the headlines uh, throughout those times, and also the covers of the major new, newspapers, major ma- major magazines, 
they effectively they effectively all point to Gustavo Petro as being kind of the perpetrator of the uh, of what they consider what what they call you know acts of you know violence, rioting, and uh, destruction uh, in Colombia. This so 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 Gustavo really has uh, has had to kind of carry this uh, uh, you know this uh, kind of imaginary pl- placard as you know. Uh, Number one threat to Colombia's democracy for a, mm-hmm. uh, for a long time, at least, uh, or, or, or at least in the eyes of the uh, of, of Colombia's right wing and e- in the eyes of the Colombian state. Now, uh, coming back to the question whether you know whether it's actually Colombian military that represents threats to um, uh, to the democracy. Well, uh, these last uh, few weeks we actually. These last few weeks, we've actually been um, hearing uh, more and more the, the rumors of a possible military coup in the case of uh, Gustavo Petro's uh, victory. In fact, uh, Gustavo Petro actually uh, met with, uh, called for a meeting with the two with the two other uh, leading candidates, uh, Rodolfo Hernandez and with Sergio Fajardo this Monday, uh, just uh, this Monday past, to discuss. Uh, you know, uh, you know this. You know the severity of the of this threat and what should be done um, against it. And th- now this can, this sort of a scenario, so, uh, so I think, is completely plausible. Uh, this scenario, along with uh, the leading uh, right wing candidate uh, Fico, Fico Gutierrez, not recognizing the result mm-hmm. that is following in the you know the playbook of the far right in Bolivia and and in Peru. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, so to conclude, uh, uh, threats. When we when we th- when we talk about the, th- the threats to the Colombian democracy, uh, we re- we really should uh, uh, look no f- look no further than the most obvious actors and the ones that are most obvious that are the most likely to organize either a coup or not or not recognize the elections, because their mm-hmm. interests, their political and economic interests, are threatened by the arrival of a progressive president to power. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Since you mentioned uh, the massive protests that followed Uribe's um, tax package that then had to be revised, talk to us about the impact of those protests on these campaigns and the role of young people. Uh, lots of articles are making note of the size of Colombia's youth population. And so I wonder, you know, are they really going to be uh, the deciding force in this election? And, uh, and are they really dedicated to exercising their political power as a bloc? I absolutely, absolutely. I believe that it is in this election the the youth, that is, the, I would say the the voters between the ages of uh, uh, eighteen and thirty five, are, are are some of the most are some of the most politicized voters uh, in the country. Mm-hmm. This uh, I believe this is not just the result of the mass uh, protests uh, last year, and the the broader kind kind of the broader movement against neoliberalism in the country. This is, I believe, this also really has to do with the legacy of uh, of Alvaro Uribe and you know, the legacy of the um, of uh, of every of all of the neoliberal governments of Colombia. Because we have to remember, Colombia has never had a left wing or even a progressive or even a um, a genuinely liberal uh, president. Since all of them, including those elected by a liberal party, eventually, you know, were, were eventually basically became, became consumed by this, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, by the by the by the conservatism that's that is so uh, uh, that is so entrenched uh, within the Colombian state. 
the I would I would I would certainly say that I would like to draw a comparison uh, to what happened in Chile throughout the last throughout let's say the the years of 2019 and 2020. So the mass up, the mass uprising against Chile's uh, neoliberal economic system against its political system followed by mass repression. I say very similar in tone to the um, to what we are seeing in Colombia, and this really energized these protests really energized. Uh, a new voting base to uh, eventually, eventually to uh, first to vote to, to vote yes to creating a new constitution for the country, to elect a two-thirds major- two-thirds left-wing and progressive majority in the constituent assembly, and of course eventually also to elect a uh, a progressive uh, uh, president to uh, uh, to power. And I believe mm-hmm. we as uh, I believe that we are seeing something similar. Uh, parallels can be drawn. With, with Colombia, is mm-hmm. the um, uh, I'll say this voting base, which we uh, which I just me- which I just mentioned, in some ways has, has felt politically disfranchised in uh, say in the, in the, in the recent years because they did not believe that they never they never uh, could could quite distinguish uh, different political forces. Uh, uh, from each other until the arrival of Gustavo Petro. Now, Gustavo mm. Petro was also the lead candidate in the last elections, and he did lose against uh, Ivan Duque, that is the mm-hmm. you know, the uh, other Uribe's chosen uh, candidate. Right. However, however, uh, what I believe really ma- will make the difference uh, this time will be one one is kind of the end of the political hegemony of Uribismo since his party mm-hmm. his, his party is not presenting a candidate uh, anymore for the first time in 20 years his party lost lost badly in the legislative elections and uh, also as and also as i said the colombian society has very much changed in the last uh, four years it has become very much de- detached from this Kind of this false uh, prom- these false promises of of, of peace and progress uh, following following yeah. the uh, the end the end of the, the end of the conflict. So the um, Gustavo, uh, so so the voting base possible voting base voting base of of Petro has been mm-hmm. enlarged substantially by this mass discontent with mm-hmm. uh, with the uh, with the current uh, Colombian state. I wonder if you can, before we let you go, give us an update on on El Salvador and this uh, state of exception that has just been extended that suspends quite a few civil liberties in the name of cracking down on gang violence. Uh, what is happening there? What's the state of society in El Salvador right now? Well, President Bukele has has effectively uh, been ruling uh, ruling ruling by decree and with with the states of exception uh, throughout ever, ever since he achieved a supermajority in yeah. the also in, in the Salvadorian uh, Congress. Uh, now, the in 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 many ways, I believe I believe Bukele is, is following the same the, the same the, the kind of the kind of book which has been followed by you know uh, right right wing right wing regimes in Central America uh, for mm-hmm. a, uh, for a long time. This I believe that his uh, uh, his measures are no different to the measures that have been that were implemented by the Colombian government uh, mm-hmm. itself, as we. Uh, say as we as we mentioned, although Bukele although, although Bukele likes to uh, likes to distinguish himself from the rest of the uh, of the rest of the right wing in Latin America, sometimes with his uh, post with his posturing against the Organization of American States or his posturing against the United about supposed intervention by the United States, but in, at the end of the day, at the end of the day he is 
he basically inherited and is using the same um, uh, say para, the, the, the same sort of uh, uh, hard paramilitary tactic, tactics as uh, as his right wing uh, as his right right, right wing uh, predecessors. Mm-hmm. That was Dennis Rogatyuk. Dennis, always appreciate you joining us. You are a journalist, a political analyst, a writer. Is there anywhere our listeners should go to find your most recent work? Certainly. Um, most recent work is at the at the, at the uh, media El Ciudadano of, of Chile in, in Spanish. Mm-hmm. You can also find me in Twitter at, uh, at uh, Dennis Rogatyuk or also on on Facebook and all, and in within other uh, uh, public uh, publications uh, as well. Mm. It was great to talk to you today on a much better connection than last time. <laughs> it's really Certainly. good. Thanks so much for the analysis. We will talk to you again very soon. John and I are going to go straight through to some weird news stories. Yes, it is. Should we start with the weirdness of having Beto O'Rourke jump up in front of the governor of Texas to... Yeah, uh, we, should, to... we should probably talk about that. So Beto O'Rourke uh, crashed a, uh, Governor Abbott's press conference yesterday and started yelling at him about uh, gun control. Mm -hmm. And so that's become the debate, not gun control, but whether Beto O'Rourke was rude or shouldn't have done what he did. I'm of the of the mind that, you know, he's he's got a First Amendment right to speak his piece. Uh, He's going to lose that election. He needed to make himself relevant for the day and get in the news. And so he said something that was important. He said something that was topical and timely and whether he was rude in doing it, I think is irrelevant. Yeah. Um, I think that uh, he did the right thing by getting up and totally and agree. Beto O'Rourke was really, uh, really oversold to a lot of people as, yeah. as more progressive, more interesting, more radical than he actually is. But he's but good I on do, guns. He has and he has been pretty consistent on guns. Yeah. Absolutely interrupt every press conference Greg Abbott ever Go gives. Like, yeah, that's that's as far as I'm concerned, probably the best thing Agreed. that Beto O'Rourke has ever done. We don't have too much time, but mm-hmm. we have a couple of interesting stories uh, for, for news of the weird. I'm going to start in Kingsland, Arkansas. It's a town about 70 miles south of Little Rock. It's the birthplace of Johnny Cash. I'm a great Johnny Cash fan. The town has honored Johnny Cash with a silhouette that they painted on the town water tower. Uh, But when Betty Graham, the water office manager, arrived at work the other day, she noticed what she first thought was a leak from the water tower. And later she realized that a sharpshooter had shot the tank right at Johnny Cash's sweet spot. And the water started coming out. Oh, making no. it look like he was, he was peeing. <laughs> right. Graham said that it could take at least a week to repair the damage to the water tank. In the meantime, comments on the local Facebook page have ranged from this would be a better tourist attraction than Old Faithful to uh-huh. someone here knows who did this and someone, someone should here, rat them out. Someone here knows who did this. That's Jeez. great. That's great. Small town. Right. Uh, students at Johns Hopkins University here in Baltimore. I thought this was fascinating. Mm-hmm. They are putting their expensive educations to good use. This is one of the finest engineering schools in the world. Right. Right. The Whiting School of Engineering has a group of students that have invested that have, sorry, invented something called Tasty Tape. So it's for Engineering Design Day, which the school does every year, where students invent something and then present their invention at sort of a science Mm -hmm. fair. 
So the chemical and biomolecular engineering students hope that this invention will help themselves and help others to make their favorite foods less messy by taping up burritos, tacos, and other dishes. You tape them closed, Uh uh keeping the fillings inside. All the ingredients in the tape are safe to eat. They're food grade. They're um, common food and dietary additives, uh, harmless food coloring. See, I thought this was going to be like, bu- I was like bubble tape existed when I was in fourth grade. What is this? This is yeah. more like tasteless tape or, you yeah, know. Yeah, tasteless we, tape or you can make it so that it tastes like the food that you're taping. Oh, that's so cool. Kind of cool, right? Yeah. They've actually patented this. I mean, I would. I would I'd too. invented that. That's there great. There might be something to it. And also very quickly, um, this was kind of funny. It's because it's something I sort of have always fantasized about. But right. in, in Irving, Calif- Irvine, California, police were tipped off uh, earlier this week by neighbors to a suspicious vehicle belonging to someone named Yasmin Cambor, age 37, and Chris, I guess Hewn? it's, it's Hune, 44. Mm-hmm. It's a 2008 Mercedes-Benz C300. All right. Looked innocent enough. But according to NBC TV, it had some unusual features. That come right out of a James Bond film. Uh, so this vehicle had a device that would make the license plate flip. What? To a different license what? plate. That's so cool. Isn't that awesome? Yes. I've always kind of wished I had something like that. Mm-hmm. You just push a button and the license plates flip. That's neat. And presumably you've stolen another license plate. Yeah, and you put it on the And back you of just car. put that one on, right. Wow. Um, it also has an elaborate gas siphoning device that transferred fuel directly into the car's gas tank. Um, the problem for these two mm-hmm. is the cops also found burglary tools and evidence of identity theft and stolen property, and they were arrested on a whole bunch of different charges and held for bail. Man, so close, But the idea guys. was a cool one. Yes. Also, uh, as we were doing the show, uh, the Sussman uh, case went to the jury. Mm, the judge yeah, took the afternoon today. off. Mm-hmm. So we're not going to hear a, a result until... Probably Tuesday. And also, you're welcome for not mentioning the Amber Heard Johnny Depp case at all on the show. Although Today's I did closing arguments it. there. Yep. yep. <laughs> but I we'll, never we'll said We'll talk anything. about all of that on Tuesday when we <laughs> see you. Thanks to all our guests, our producers and engineers. And on behalf of John and myself, Michelle, thank you for listening. Have a good week. We'll weekend. see you next week. <laughs> 